This podcast was recorded on April 22nd, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Double N Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome everyone to the Sherman Show. I'm here today uh, remotely with my podcast co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we are uh, bringing back Mr. Jeff Mayberry from the Macro Asset Allocation Team. He's a portfolio manager there, and uh, to discuss uh, some of the mysteries we've seen in financial markets over the last week or so, and uh, give you guys an update on how we're thinking here at Double Line. So, welcome back, Jeff. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. So uh, it's good that you uh, you make yourself available for these things because uh, Sam and I, I think people get bored just hearing our voice. But uh, before we get into some of the mysteries, I think out there, definitely uh, oil's dominating the headlines. I want to talk about some of the facts and fantasies we see out there or some of the truths and, um, you know, kind of often told um, dislocations or often told, uh, you know, not very fully truthful stories about those markets. Uh, we'll get to that a bit later. But Sam, you want to kick us off? with uh, what you're seeing here as we sit here on uh, Wednesday, April 22nd. Yeah, so let's do a little flash on the markets as we've been doing on these uh, weekly updates. Uh, moving on to month to date and then the followed by year to date performance, we'll go through various sectors of the uh, various asset classes rather. So if the S&P 500 month to date up 6% on a year to date basis down 15%. The Bloomberg Barclays US bond aggregate up 2% on the month to date and up 5% for the year to date. Gold up six and up 10 respectively. WTI, which probably will be a focus of this uh, podcast today is down 51% as of last night, which was April 21st on the futures contract, uh, front month futures contract down over 50% on a month to date basis and down 85%, let's say on the year to date basis. For yields, uh, for the most part, we're hunched over the previous week uh, with the 10-year Treasury at 65 basis points, call it, and the 10-year German boon down uh, with a negative 50 basis points, and JGBs, again, just flat. Current cash spreads on the, on the, uh, the week is about 200 um, basis points for investment-grade corporate credit, 760 on the high-yield index, and 500 on the EM. Uh, both high yield and EM came in a little bit tighter on the week. In terms of an economic roundup, uh, I'm going to go back about two weeks here. Somewhat, um, the data is a little bit, uh, you know, stale now. But uh, I think that given the moves that we saw, they're, you know, they're they're relevant. And uh, for CPI, the Consumer Price Index, on a headline and core basis, year over year, we saw 1.5 percent and 2.1 percent respectively. Retail sales, we saw that go down negative uh, 8.7%, which I believe is the on a month-over-month basis, which, if I recall correctly, is the, the, the most negative print on record. Industrial production, month-over-month, month, we're down 5 and 5.4%. That's the worst going back to 1945, which is just around the, the end of uh, World War II. And year-over-year year basis, we're down 55 Initial jobless claims, we had another uh, 5.2 million last week, bringing the four-week total to over 20 million. And as I was looking at the estimates, I think the estimate for this coming week is going to be about, uh, they're, they're looking at down another 4.5 million, uh, with the continuing claims jumping up to around 17 million. And then finally, on the Fed balance sheet, we saw a pickup of uh, about uh, 300 billion over prior week to bring the Fed balance sheet total at 6.4 trillion. Uh, I'm going to kick it over to Jeff Mayberry for a policy roundup. Uh, yeah, thanks, Sam. I think that uh, we 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 here we are on uh, April 22nd, the morning of, and last night the Senate unanimously approved a, a new fiscal package, 484 billion in total. Uh, for hospitals and um, the U.S. economy overall. Uh, it's, well, supposedly, we've, we've heard 
that the House is going to vote on this tomorrow. And so hopefully uh, this, this new package comes into comes into play. Um, it's about three three hundred and twenty billion for the uh, the PPP, as uh, Mr. Sherman likes to say. It's not purchase. Uh, wait, what is it? What is it? Purchasing power parity. Purchasing power parity. I knew it was in there. Yeah, but it's a the Paycheck Protection Program, um, and that brings the total to about three trillion dollars uh, that we've that we've had on the fiscal side um, so far. I've heard or I'm seeing on Twitter that they're already talking about uh, the next two packages. Uh, so it seems like it's more piecemeal as as things get um, wound down than 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 the the Congress gets gets and says, okay, well, let's do a little bit more for the things that we need more money for, which seems like a um, seems like a slower way to do things, but you know, for me, it seems like that's the kind of the right way to do it. Uh, finally, there in the, in this package, there is uh, seventy five billion dollars for hospitals, which is going to be sorely needed, um, and twenty five billion for virus testing or whatever uh, whatever that may mean. But certainly, we think that that's uh, something that is going to be needed going forward. Yeah, I mean, so I think we, we've heard about um, some of these programs being focused on certain industries, such as the airline industry and, um, you know, some of the towel stuff uh, focused on some of the hospitality and leisure, although not really directly in there, kind of just very uh, surgical parts of those markets. But um, what is your take, Jeff, uh, from the commodity side on there being an oil bailout? Uh, we've seen the president focus on this a few weeks back. You know, he talked about, um, you know, he invited all the, the CEOs and leaders of the oil industry to the White House. And there was a little bit of r- rallying around that. Obviously, we've seen some collapse there. But before we get into all the details about the oil market, wh- what do you think about the oil bailout? I, I think we did, did. Did I read correctly that uh, we bought we, we stocked up a little bit in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at the net at uh, about a $30 oil price recently. Uh, but well, what's your viewpoint on the on the uh, focus of the oil industry? Well, I think that certainly it's important to you know try to save jobs and try to keep uh, those those oil jobs. That's been a big um, source of employment over the past you know call it four or five years now. And so it, it's hard to pe- for people to say you've been you've been doing this. It's been from what I understand a well-paying job working in the oil fields to now you have no job because uh, the oil oil you know prices are down so much. So I think it's helpful to to try to save jobs, but I don't know if it makes sense to, um, you know, keep, keep the, the machine going in the same direction. Maybe, you know, we, we kind of joked about how they should just retrain some of the oil workers to build more storage. And then we wouldn't have, uh, we'd be able to, to save more oil and, and store more oil and wouldn't have to stop uh, pumping. Yeah. Well, that was the it's... joke that, that was circulating around our virtual trading desk that we were chatting about yesterday. But I mean, we, we talked about this before, I think, when we talked uh, when there was the idea that maybe one of these future stimulus bills would be on the infrastructure side. Right. And uh, I think I, I raised the issue on that saying, well, who, who's going to do all of this work? Right. Uh, you can't take your hospitality and leisure workers and overnight expect them to be able to build bridges and roads and and heavy kind of manual labor type of construction jobs. But maybe perhaps this is one way of finding that that worker base. Um, and retrain them. I, I think you know some of the roughnecks and the folks out there in the oil patches um, could uh, have that that skill set that would work on the infrastructure side. So so maybe there is a resurrection on 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 that direction of um, trying to you know again uh, do things that will be more helpful in the long run. I, I don't think the long run solution here is building more storage facilities for oil, uh, given the fact that that. Uh, we've just uh, we're oversupplying the world with it, and I think we're gonna we'll get into that um, shortly. Uh, but um, <clears throat> I I do think that you could find some of that worker base that we talked about, you know, uh, previous uh, shows about that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You've had people who are uh, you know moved to north North or South Dakota to, to work in the oil fields, and so they're not you know it's only been maybe it's only been a couple of years. Maybe they love it up there, don't want to move, but. Uh, they could be a little bit more transitory and, and kind of move around to where the projects are. And certainly um, there certainly seems to be, you know, at least here in Los Angeles, the need for some uh, road repair and, uh, you know, certainly other places there, there's there's uh, a decaying infrastructure that, that could use uh, some help. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, I haven't been on the roads in a while, but I'm sure they're still as poor as they, they were uh, the last time I was out there. 
So yeah, the interesting thing is actually it would be the perfect time to do it too, right? While there's lighter traffic on, on the road, given the shelter and home, it would be a good time to actually to put some of that infrastructure money towards rebuilding uh, uh, the, the dilapidated infrastructure that we have. I would just say pave the road, right? And all yeah, the projects first. that they've been trying to do, right? It, it's a great time to do it uh, while we're still uh, kind of stuck at home. <clears throat> so let, let's jump into the commodity market because there, there's been a source of uh, a lot of, I'll call it misinformation or a lot of speculation. Uh, maybe that's because I've I've been reading Twitter too much and and some of these other news sources that I think uh, aren't necessarily, they're, they're pointing fingers at who's to blame for this. But let, let's go back to the, the basics of commodity futures. And so uh, folks know that we have a commodity strategy here at DoubleLine. Uh, you guys uh, are part of the portfolio management team on that. Can, can you uh, just give us a basic uh, example of how the futures market works, let's say in something like crude oil, um, these contracts expiring, how indices and, and investors typically get exposed to that. And let's work through that mechanics because I think it's important to understand this, that there's been a lot of blame that it's the ETFs, the ETNs uh, that are out there in the marketplace that have have created this this uh, phenomenon of the first time ever seeing uh, oil trade and actually sell at massively negative prices. Um, it's funny that it broke the zero, zero, the perceived zero lower bound, and it just went crazy of it going negative. So let, let's, before we get into all the dynamics of what happened, let's go back and talk, tell our listeners a little bit about how the futures market works with these contracts and how most investors through index and ETFs get their exposure. So jump ball for either of you. Uh, all the indices that are, are out there, or at least the largest indices that are out there, roll their futures contracts uh, at the beginning of each month. So you have these future contracts. So, so Jeff, let, let's, let's make sure I, that I, we understand the distinction between yeah. spot oil and futures contracts. What is the difference? So spot oil is uh, how much you would be able to buy or sell a barrel of oil today. Uh, futures contracts are where you would, you would transact. It's like uh, you would transact at a, at a forward date uh, for a given price. So, 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 so the, the destruction we saw in price and, and the huge volatility swing we saw was in the May contract, right? And that May contract is for delivery in, in the month of May, right? So it wasn't the spot price of oil. It was the May delivery price, correct? That's correct. And it's, it's kind of weird because it's the May, de May delivery, but it stops trading in, in April. So, you know, there's a lot of confusion or I guess you got to have time to once you buy it or sell it to be able to, to deliver it to the to the um, to to where it needs to be. Uh, so so there is some time lag there. Uh, but it so you have but you can do it in in May or June or July. It goes out every month for oil. It goes out every month of the year. And so you can have delivery or buying or selling um, in the futures contract for future uh, delivery. And so uh, the, the way that people so you have so in order to gain your exposure, you have to have always have a futures contract outstanding in your purchasing or selling. And so when you sell a contract and buy a contract further out the curve, uh, it's called, a, you know, you're rolling your position. So if you sell May and buy June, you're rolling your position out. So you have another month for worth of exposure in the oil contract. And so most of your indices do it in the, the beginning of the month. There's there's you know, the roll days are typically business days five to nine. Then there's the pre-roll, pre-roll days where people do it sometimes, which is days business days one to four. You know, maybe, as there is, I don't know if there's a pre-pre-roll where it's like the end of the month, the previous month. Um, but it, you know, it's it's very um, very much put in place so that there is a you're not really getting caught at the very very end of when these futures contract tracks trade. You're not caught in having to buy or sell. Or, or, you know, the, the indices don't want to get caught having to buy or sell. They want to buy or sell when there's more liquidity um, and not really where there's where the amount of trading uh, diminishes to a place where you get some, your, you know, there's the possibility for some dislocations. Right. And I think that's important, right? Because people blame the financialization of commodities. And uh, I've, I've heard that phrase be used since kind of that 06 kind of period when we had that uh, the boom from the, 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 uh, the consumption from China. But what you're describing here, too, is how most of the financial players in general are the ones uh, they were out of this contract um, early in the month or at least a week to two, a week and a half prior uh, to kind of that big price volatility and big swings of uh, more than 50 or 60 dollars in a given day. 
Um, so let's talk about that, too, because money had piled into some of these ETFs and ETNs. And uh, the ETFs were a lot of the where I saw a lot of the ire and the blame of these negative prices. But if, when we dug into some of the holdings, which we did, you know, kind of prepping for this, what you see is that, as expected, uh, the these big ETFs and ETNs were out of these contracts. Right. They were out of the May and they were already into the June contract. So what's a plausible explanation for what's going on here or what happened, let's say, on uh, on Monday, the 20th? I mean, I think bringing it back to the um, the role schedule in terms of futures contract, I mean, each futures contract has a predetermined schedule in terms of when the final trades uh, occur. And if we bring it back to the the May WTI futures contract, the last trade on that was Tuesday, yesterday, uh, 421. Uh, much of the the price action, the negative price action, you know, figuratively and literally, they're on the negative price action that we saw occurred two days prior to expiry on on 420, which was a which was a Monday. Um, so as you mentioned before, you know, the, the larger players, the people who are in this as a, as a business in terms of their investment, so the indices, the, the, the various funds, the institution or buyers, they, they understand this preset role schedule. As you mentioned, they're usually out two weeks beforehand. Um, but what we saw coming into to 420 was that ultimately, I think it was, it was a problem of the demand supply imbalance that resulted from, you know, factors that had been developing well in advance of, of that date. So you had a, that imbalance that came from the negative impact on the demand side from COVID-19 because of the global economy um, shutdown effectively paired with the overproduction of crude oil that had been coming, you know, for some would say years. I mean, that resulting surplus effectively created a, uh, a deficiency in either storage capacity. And I think this can be debated if it's actual storage capacity um, that was limited or just merely access even to that said storage capacity, which was already claimed that happened to coincide with this, you know, this coming uh, the uh, expiration date of that May futures contract oil on 420. I think it was the confluence of all those factors, the, the, uh, the lack of demand, the demand destruction, the oversupply, the surplus, and then access getting uh, that access to the, the storage facilities in order to take physical delivery became that issue. And what ultimately what you had was uh, selling pressure as people who were long these uh, futures contracts going into the expiry date. Don't forget that if you are long on, a, on um, a physical settlement of WTI crude oil, that means you have to be prepared uh, contractually to take delivery of that oil. And if you don't have access to storage at that time, you become a very motivated seller come you know a day or right. two before her expiry so <laughs> i think that led to the cascade as people realized that you know either there wasn't storage or more importantly either way they couldn't get access to that storage so that just led to that price destruction that we saw ultimately with uh the may contract of uh wti crude oil going down to its lows of around 40 dollars per barrel right and so i, I think that's uh, important to really uh to to bring up because you said it was a confluence of events. There's no one single idea out there. But what you're going to, I think that's why we wanted to get out here in front of this and, and talk about the misinformation campaign that's likely to coincide with this week is because uh, I've already read stories about some ETNs out there shutting down. Not shockingly, the three-time levered one went down earlier <laughs> because the three, 3X leverage kills you when you have these kind of moves. And one went um, down today as well. Yeah, one went down today, um, and uh, some and one of the ETFs is not uh, doesn't um, have the ability to take on new subscriptions at this point. But also, you know, I think some of the carnage you saw out there too was people piling into these contracts. And and what's happened is that if you look at some of the ETF growth, there's been a few billion dollars increase in the value uh, that have been that have come into some of these ETFs lately. And so, although that isn't the reason for this this May price collapse. Um, it has had some impact, uh, though, you've seen uh, just in the markets as well as there had to be more and more exposure. And what's happened in, instead of crowding the market, uh, some of these ETFs have been redefined that they don't just want to own the next month out. They're moving further out the schedule. And I think that's an important distinction because, um, you know, that's something that we think about when, when our commodity strategy was that, you know, there is a lot of noise on the front of this curve, um, especially when it comes to settlement time. 
But uh, it seems to me that uh, just looking at some of the open interest data, looking at some of the volume, it seems like someone was trying to figure out some ARB strategy of of buying and storing it for a little bit and taking the <laughs> delivery. So, Sam, I, I know that uh, you were you know, in the middle of this when we were seeing those negative prices. You were researching ways to take delivery of one contract uh, of future of crude oil to your home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just um, think about so that. How did that work? Uh, well, first of all, let, let's first of all, how did that work out? Uh, what did you learn along the way? And maybe you can tell um, some of our listeners um, uh, your preferred method, whether store it or try to invest in it. So go ahead, give yeah. your experience. Yeah. So, so you talk about that arb that came, you know, and then my 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 mind starts spinning on how I could take a thousand barrels of oil for one contract of WTI crude. Um, and uh, the arb, I mean, I guess the way we could describe it is uh, using that lower bound of forty dollars uh, on the intraday low. If I had been able to, you call it forty dollars. Let's be clear, it was negative. Negative. Sorry. Negative forty dollars. <laughs> it's not loose yeah, back. The yeah, the sign negative. is important. Negative here. forty dollars a barrel. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. The uh, the sign is important nowadays, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> More so than ever. So, um, yes, negative nine, uh, negative forty dollars. If I had been, you know, the the best uh, trader ever, I could have gotten at that point and gotten paid forty negative. I could have gotten paid forty dollars per barrel to take on that contract, um, store it at my house, and let's just say, you know, sell a futures contract down the, you know, I could pick my tenor. I could go June, July, August, and I could have sold it at, uh, you know, let's just say uh, 30 bucks or so. I could have picked up 70 bucks per barrel on that trade. So the problem becomes, where do I store that oil? So I don't have any leases. I don't have any storage facility at, at, in Cushing, Oklahoma, which is the delivery point for um, WTI crude oil. So forget the logistics of having to, to get a pipeline over to my house or get some type of transportation. After that, you know, I was looking at my backyard and I have a swimming pool, you know, we were joking around on our desk as well as, you know, maybe, you know, one of us could empty all their swimming pools and start using that as a place to store oil. But given that there was what, 42 barrels uh, per, per um, I'm sorry, 42 gallons per, per barrel of oil times a thousand, you know, that's a lot of uh, gallons of, of uh, crude oil that I have to shelter in place here alongside myself. And I don't know if it would have fit with the regulations uh, within my, my little township here as well. So the fines could have- You probably uh, have to, uh, you probably have to spend all your profits replastering your pool afterwards too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so there's, there's going to have to be some EPA, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of bribe along the way to store 42,000 gallons just, of oil. Just put your pool your cover, cover over it and uh, no one will know. I, I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't think I've ever been to your pool, uh, Sam, but I have to envision it probably doesn't have a 42,000 gallon capacity, does it? No, it doesn't, nor would you want to go into it right now either. So, you know, I'm not saying I have crude oil in there, but uh, you probably wouldn't want to go in. All right. So so let's um, let's talk about um, what has happened since then. Right. So you've seen some redefinition. You're going to see some fun shuttering. And I, I just think that there's going to be some blame on the, the financial players here. But really, when it comes back down to thinking about what happened here, um, one is the CME allowed the price to go negative, which is something that people didn't speculate, right? When we pulled up the future screens that morning, the limit price down was supposed to be a penny. Uh, they revised that during the day and say they can trade wherever. So something's changed there. So um, RIP to the logarithmic pricing model to my, our math nerds out there that, <laughs> that um, use the those things, right? Because now commodities can go negative. Um, secondly, now what I found was very interesting, the CME, the, the mercantile exchange is now going to list options with negative strike prices on it. So they're not only, um, you know, saying it can happen, they're kind of adding fuel to the fire. Um, I did see an article this morning where someone said, uh, perhaps next month's delivery, June, will trade at negative $100 a barrel. So, Sam, you may get your chance again if you keep looking at your what we call the cash and carry arb of, of taking delivery and, and taking it back out there. But negative 100 was out there in, in the media today. So um, it's not just stock analysts and, and, and that put crazy price targets on things. Uh, the commodity world does, too. But what does this do going forward? Um, as we think about the dynamics for June, um, as we get to later in May, what you know, what do you guys think is going to happen again? Um, are we going to be able to solve this glut, or are we going to see something like negative one hundred dollars a barrel of oil? Well, I suppose. Well, I think that. Oh, oh, go ahead, neighbor. I was just going to say that I think that uh, because you saw all this price action, you know, with two days and one day left, or I guess it was two days before the 
the futures contract stop trading, I think that people are not likely to be hold, holding positions as long or as close to expiry as, uh, as they have been. At least, at least financial not, players, right? If financial more players. The physical players still will because that's part of their market. Right. right, right. The financial players will, will get out. And you've seen, as you said, the largest ETN moved its way out uh, of the curve as opposed to just being in the, the most recent or the closest to expiry trade. They moved out a couple months. Um, and so you start to see, you'll, I think you'll start to see more migration towards that side of things uh, from the financial side versus, and versus and leave, you know, maybe that, that leaves it more of the, the, the actual people, um, you know, in the oil business uh, are, are left to their own devices as you get closer to expiry. Well, I think you, I mean, we made up, a, you, you guys both brought up a good point. I mean, there's the financial and the physical um, participants in this market. And I question if people start transacting, pri financial you know, players start transacting, you know, earlier um, in advance of the expiry date, if that truly will help, because at that point, you know, you know, the physical buyers are the ones that are going to be on the other side of that trade. And what we saw in May, you know, was that your traditional buyers, who are the ones that are in the physical space and have access to that storage, became either unwilling or un unable to take that delivery at a positive price. So instead of paying, they decided they wanted to get paid. And, you know, that's why you saw the negative prices. So at, at some point, you have to wonder if these physical, you know, uh, uh, people who can physically store, store oil are going to demand that ultra low or, you know, potentially, again, that, that negative price, which is somewhat refreshing in an odd way, if you think about it, because it's an unmanipulated, that's an actual market clearing price, as opposed to some of this manipulated markets that we've been seeing, you know, through Fed um, support and Fed uh, interest rate, you know, targeting at, you know, at some point. So the, to see the, the the CME allow prices to actually clear at a market clearing price in some ways can be refreshing. So, you know, when we think about that, will these, um, you know, the, the buyers, the, the people who actually go long into the expiry and take the physical delivery, are they going to continue to demand the negative price? And I, I think it's it's very possible if we still have the that so-called confluence of, of issues of, you know, the, the surplus tied to um, storage concerns. Yeah, I, and this is something that I know that you guys are probably sick of me railing on, and I'll just continue to do so. This is where I think the U.S. oil industry has to learn to balance supply and demand. And so forget the whole demand destruction thing. We'll tackle that in a second. But they've oversupplied this market. They've looked to the rest of the, the world to be uh, the ones who are the ones that keep the supply-demand uh, balance aligned. Um, you've seen that through the requirement of OPEC cuts. We've seen this the last couple of years where OPEC has delivered some cuts to the market. Obviously, they roiled the market in late February when they said they weren't going to do so. Or it was early March. It all blends together. But mm -hmm. the thing is, is the U.S. continued to put more and more output out there. And some of that's because they need to, to deliver oil simply to make their debt payments, right? That's a highly levered industry. Um, but also that they've just been refusing to turn the spigot off. They just said, we'll make up low prices by pumping more. We'll make it up in volume, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And the problem, you know, as, as I think we said, we said this on recently on the problem uh, webcast is that the problem here for low prices is low prices. And right now it's undeniable to demand destruction. And so I know some of our traders and things on, on the desk and some of our, our chat rooms were talking about, hey, I'll take delivery of that, you know, um, you know, look up, uh, but they sell the pump and they see the pump still like almost $3 a gallon <laughs> out here for oil. I'm sorry, for, for gasoline. And so I think what, what you see here is that this, this is one of those reckoning moments where it's like, look, the U.S. industry, oil industry has to recognize the fact that we have a glut of oil. And so unless we're going to build all these storage facilities, as we talked about early on, um, they need to turn the spigot off for a little, uh, for a period of time. And that's been the challenge here is that you, know, you haven't really seen that spigot being turned off. And so I don't think the solution is, you know, building more and more storage facilities it's that understanding that uh, I think it's pretty it should have been pretty obvious to the players out there that if we're going to have this uh, safety at home policy, um, which we, we botch the name of that every time we bring it up, but the safety at home policy across the country, um, there's going to be massive demand destruction. Right. And there's nowhere for the oil slide or the refined product, the gasoline to go. Right. There's it's not as much there's not as much demand out there. And I think it's still like, you know, 40 percent of, of fuel demand comes from the trucking industry or so. So at least part of that is still out there. 
but it's one of those things where it's like you, you kind of need to read the writing on the wall here as these producers. And so um, it's going to be a, an interesting thing. Um, but I, I was going to ask, too, why didn't we try to take delivery of that oil for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at negative 37? It's, I think, where it's settled, but negative 40, as you saw on the screens. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like that was that's a good place, and we obviously have a storage facility for it. Um, but um, it's like stock buybacks. Uh, they, they tend to get done at the highs, uh, not the lows. Well, that's the, the funny thing is, too, is, I mean, what's interesting is that President Trump had been, you know, looking to Congress to get funding to fill the strategic petroleum reserve. And we heard him talking about as that's one way that we could increase demand, albeit temporarily, is to fill that reserve. But Congress seemed to have been blocking him to, you know, to some extent in terms of getting funding. So if he could have gotten paid to do it, you know, a la the negative <laughs> prices there, you know, President Trump prides himself on being a great deal maker. That would have been a great deal. No, I think it would, given the fact that we're announcing trillions upon trillions every time. We need a way to pay for some of it. Hey, at least some nice payment to take delivery of this oil would have been good. So, mm -hmm. um, so uh, again, I think people have started to think about this and, and think about the commodity world a lot differently. It reminds me of when we first started seeing negative interest rates in a meaningful manner that all of a sudden now we had to rethink the world. Um, do you think that investors should rethink um, the way they access the commodity market? Um, is this just a function of you know, a one-off event? Or how, how do you think investors should process this? And is there some opportunity that you're thinking about within the oil or the commodity space um, as you, you kind of digest this new information? Uh, I'll start with you, Jeff. Well, I mean, I think I think that you, you know, the investors, I, you know, I, I, we think we harped on this a little bit uh, whenever I was on last couple of weeks ago about the high-yield ETFs, and you should know what you own or know what you're you're looking to buy. And so if you're buying, you know, a big oil ETF, uh, you should know that it's not only uh, the, the most recent contract now, it's out for a few months. But you also have to understand the um, the role mechanics and that the fact that you are buying something that the price goes up the further you or at least right now, the price is, is higher the further out you go um, in terms of your your contracts. And so when you get to a point where you have to roll your contract, you actually are selling, selling low, buying high, which, uh, you know, people, people tend to, to do that, but it's really, you know, over time as, as, a, um, as a systematic strategy, that, that roll, uh, that negative roll really hurts your overall returns. So people look at these ETFs and say, oh, this, this price is so low, oil is so low, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy, you know, gonna, I'm going to buy this ETF and I'm going to hold it and then when oil goes up, you know, up to, to 10 or 12 or $20 a barrel, I'm going to double my money, but your, uh, your roll yield eats away, I guess, an annualized number, you know, 30% of that return. Oh, no, no, uh, so, no, 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 Jeff, that is not annualized. <laughs> oh, that's, that's not just annualized. A month over month. That's month over month. It's annualized because that's what it can be. That's, that's so what it usually it, is. Yeah, typically when you have a bad market, an oversupplied market, the annualized rate is 30%, you know, so you only have a couple percent per month. Um, yeah. In this case, right now on the screens, I calculate it's about 31.1% is the is the roll down effect you would get if the curve were to not move. And we know it will move. Uh, but, but I think it's it's pretty interesting to see that people say, well, the ETFs don't work or these things don't um, don't operate correctly, um, but they operate as they were designed. And so this is an ETF. This is a rules based system. It's systematic and the rules are out there. And so it's caveat emptor as always with the financial markets where you need to be able to um, actually understand what exposure you're, you're obtaining in the marketplace. So I think it'll be another one of those educational period for investors uh, where they see that this is something they have to overcome. I yeah, I think that's right too. And you know, going back to knowing what you own too, it's you know, there's a huge distinction. Yeah, the question, Sherman, if this will go, you know, extend to other commodities as well. And I think a big distinction needs to be made between physical settle and cash settle. Because if we take a look at the the sister commodity there, uh, you know, the, with the Brent crude oil contract, we didn't see that same type of uh, destruction. Or pain, you know, happen uh, at near the expiry around that same time, and I think a lot of that has to be with the fact that uh, it was a cash sub. Uh, Brent crude oil is a cash settled product versus WTI crude oil, which is physical, and you need, as we've talked about, to take that physical delivery if you are stuck being long at expiry. 
But I think another question that arises from that is, I'd have to imagine there were people who are, you know, are held that uh, may contract into expiry, either unknowingly, perhaps, because maybe some of the tourists in this, in this part of the world um, are actually the ones that could be, you know, have some fingers pointed to them as, as in terms of assessing blame. But, you know, there could be just you know, participants out there that are just stuck holding the bag that didn't want to take that hit on negative oil. And they said, you know, maybe we're just not going to take delivery. What, I mean, I'd imagine there's some type of counterparty risk there involved where someone that's holding that uh, contract just doesn't take delivery, walks away or default. I mean, there seems to be a lot of uh, forbearance and, you know, bailouts and uh, defaults that are, you know, Fed approved today. So, you know, why can't that happen with WTI crude oil? And if so, well, it's not. Totally- yeah, well, you bring up a great point on the cash settle nature because the cash settle nature of Brent crude, and that's the benchmark for the rest of the world. Um, it's it's traded out of Europe. Um, what you see there is that you didn't have um, near the volatility, you didn't have this huge $50 intraday price swing. Um, and because in, in that case, since it's cash settle, you can't do the Sam Lau pool uh, oil arbitrage cash and carry trade, right? Yep. So from that perspective, that did um, that does glean some insight. But I think another thing that people should think about is we assume like fungibility across these commodities because we lump them all together. We call it an oil market. Right. And but it's like we call the U.S. Uh, I'd like to draw the parallel to the U.S. housing market. Right. Uh, people say, well, the housing market, you know, in the U.S. could never go down. This was uh, one of those narratives we heard in, in the early and mid 2000s. But the thing about housing market is it's a market of a bunch of individual markets. And same thing with uh, with oil. As you'd mentioned, there needs to be pipelines, there's deliveries. They are localized markets. And so it is a market of markets. And there is a disconnect. There was a disconnect massively between Brent and um, WTI, you know, the West Texas Intermediate Crew. But some of that has to do with the locality and the supply. And as you, I think Jeff brought it up, that you know you have to deliver this to Cushing, Oklahoma. Well, if Cushing's full in storage, what do you do, right? <laughs> and this isn't like uh, you know we read with the milk farmers, where they just you know you can take the milk and kind of dispose of it on the farmland. You know you don't really want to take the oil and put it, try to put it back in the ground. Um, and I think there are some EPA issues with trying to do that. And obviously, you can't be you just can't get rid of it. So that that is the challenge of this physical delivery market, too. But I, I do think it should be brought to people's attention that there's different grades of crude. They trade at different levels. I mean, think about the Canadian oil sounds in, in West Canada. Uh, they've been trading at like single digit price dollar prices, albeit they were positive. Um, some of those did get slightly negative um, this week, but they've been they've been massively at a discount relative to let's say WTI and or Brent crude simply because that localized market is full of inventory, right? And it, it's oversupplied in that market. So uh, I think that is a great point you bring up that Brent did not exhibit this type of behavior. Um, and it may be because of the cash settle, maybe it's because that market is more imbalanced um, uh, there uh, than let's say we have here in the US today. Yeah, I would also say on top, another factor perhaps there is, you know, versus the landlocked Cushing uh, delivery point, North Sea, it, it's, you know, the access to, to, to shipping in terms of uh, being able to, to store these, you know, additional areas of storing or transporting it, to, uh, the ease is so much um, higher, you know, through shipping than it is through trying to create these pipelines, you know, to, to you know, move out of Cushing and other, other storage points. Yeah, well, for investors looking for yield out there, and again, it's a dangerous trade, but um, you could have sold WTI volatility. I think one month implied volatility, I saw on the screen at one point on Monday, was over 1,400%. Um, so uh, for those that want to get naked volatility um, positions in their portfolio, uh, that one that is one that could be uh, slightly attractive there, unless you think this is going to happen again, which obviously it could if we don't learn our lesson from the supply side here, uh, you know, we, we could end up in the same uh, boat, uh, no pun intended, in, in a month's time. Yeah. No, it's funny. You're talking about the the volatility and just, you know, you see people start piling on on these things a little bit too late. And just it's reminiscent of those that wanted to sell ball back in, uh, what was it, uh, 2008? 18? Yeah, 18, right? Or, or there was one of the ETNs out there that blew up. And I've seen a lot of that, too, where people are saying, oh, this is just like that vol fund or something out there. You know, what's what's endemic about the vol fund as well as, you know, we talked about the 3x levered ETNs is that 
it's a leverage that takes these things out, right? Typically, um, it's not the idea of, of taking big losses. It's the leverage that does it. Um, and again, most of these ETNs, ETFs, funds, strategies were not exposed to this contract. So this is a quintessential squeeze on a market. Uh, this is what happens once they saw the price, the traders saw the price go negative. People took advantage of it. And there it's a it's a traditional long squeeze there. They're saying, where are you going to find the ability to do this? And the shorts came in and just eradicated the price. And so I, I think it's important to not lump these things together as being similar. Yes, on the leverage side, those are the the overlapping characteristics. But from the standpoint of looking at what happened in the oil market, that is a completely different thing than what happened in the volatility funds out there. And so I want to I want to draw that distinction. And so. Again, flexibility, making sure that, you know, you're not in the crowded trade is is very important. But to me, this is a market that is giving us more of the signals too. there's something awry out there. There's something that this is demand destruction. This is deflationary type of pressures that are coming. And I think um, that's why you saw some of the risk markets kind of freak out in the last two days, although we have a little bit of a relief rally this morning saying, wait a second, you know, maybe things aren't going to just go back to normal. Uh, once we lift some of this safety at home uh, measures. No, I, th I think that's absolutely correct. And it's it's pretty scary to, to think that we're just not even through April yet because 2020 is already shaping up to be a year for, for stories that we're going to be able to tell the young, younger generation, right? We had the, what did you call it, safety in place. You know, we've had negative interest rates. We've seen, you know, a, a contract on uh, WT crude oil become worse than worthless because you actually had to pay someone to take it off your hands, you know, through the negative prices on commodity futures. And, you know, we've seen all this, these new regimes, I guess, if you will, maybe it's not a regime, but we've seen these historical moves and it's not even summer yet. You know, what's yeah. the rest of the, the year come have to have in store? Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's amazing because this is where people have to rethink models and, and rethink what's going on out there. And so I said, um, RIP to the crude oil logarithmic price uh, <laughs> model out there because uh, that's not going to uh, that's obviously did not hold uh, last Monday. So. All right. So what else did we miss this week? Uh, I know we want to really talk about this because there's a lot of misinformation around there. Um, you know, but in general, I think what you see is this, this is supply and demand. It's working itself out. There's a lot of noise in the in the oil market as we speak now. That June contract that got down to six dollars yesterday is back up to like fourteen thirty-five on the screen now. Um, just so you're aware, Jeff, the contango is still negative thirty percent um, on a on a <laughs> one month basis, not annualized right now. Um, but um, you know, is there anything else we should talk about before we uh, jump to your favorite part of the show, Sam? I was just going to say in a in a market where it seems like, you know, the fixed income side of things and uh, it seems to have calmed down a little bit. You you get this other shock in the commodity side of things. So there's always something going on, something interesting to talk about. Yeah, it is pretty amazing you bring that up because, you know, we had the stock market vol. We've had, you know, corporate bond vol. We've had structured products vol. We had Andrew on last time. Great, great uh, insight from him. Uh, talking about some of the nuances in those markets without Fed support. Um, I think this is a world of price discovery right now. And what, I think what people are realizing that unless the, you have a, a Fed that's ready, willing to either either buy your asset or lend, uh, lend against it, um, that it's a whole different ballgame out there. So I think uh, as I think forward right now, I think what I'm, I glean from the price action behavior in crude oil is that um, th this is not just we're going to uh, return to normalcy. Um, this is not a market in general that's pricing in, or at least the oil market is not priced in massive recovery back to you know January 2020 levels. And so I think it's some it should be eye opening for other parts of the market as well. And just say that hey, you know, just because you have these Fed these perceived Fed puts out there doesn't mean uh, everything and all, all the pain is behind us. There's a lot more pain to come still. It may not be an asset prices, but definitely this recovery is going to be slower and longer um, than I think uh, a lot of people forecast at the beginning. And I think this is one of those wake up calls again where you're seeing stress in a true physical market um, taking place. So I'll take yeah, your silence. Could, if could, there's nothing I was going to say it could be one of those where we look back in a couple of years and be like, I should have known when oil went negative. I should have known there was there was more to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those where you don't appreciate it contemporaneously. I think our eyes all popped out. We were on an investment team call when it was happening, and it was just like, uh, 
wow, this is insane. Like how much worse will it get? And so uh, obviously it got way worse. So uh, definitely one to put in the repository, one to revisit later. But I appreciate you jumping on with us today, Jeff, and, and talking about this because I think it's important for investors to really think about it and not just take some of the common blames out there. So many media articles in the last day or two were about, you know, it's the fault of the ETFs or these certain funds out there. And I think um, that's missing the forest for the trees. So um, anyway, um, before we go, we have a guest on today. We're bringing Mark Kimbrough back to introduce us to Sherman Says. So Mark, why don't you, or actually Sam, give everybody the rules because Jeff maybe forgot um, on what we're going to do here. And then Mark will have you kick off the Sherman Says segment. Yeah, and the rules of the road for my so-called favorite part of the the show is uh, Mr. Kimbrough will offer a series of prompts alternating between the, the three of us here, Sherman, Mayberry, and myself, to which we'll provide a top of mind response. So Mr. Kimbrough, can you please kick us off? All right, well, thanks for having me back. Wait, we're going to start off. Let's, with Mr. let's go. Okay. What, what's the order, Kimbrough? What's the order? The order, we're going to start off with Mr. Sherman, go to Mr. Lyle, and then finish with Mr. Mayberry. Okay, and for those listening, Kimbrough is his real name, too. That's not some nickname, so he is a Kimbrough. My wife asks that all the time. <laughs> if it's short for something, she started asking if it's a nickname, then she asked if it's short for something. I just said, no, it's his name. So I can never remember been my whole life. name is Mark, either. Yeah, Mark's tough. He's a Kimbro, and it, you know it's not short for anything, unlike the guy who tried to tell us once that his name was Ted which is short for ed and i'm like that's 50 percent longer uh although it is still monosyllabic it is 50 percent longer in terms of letters so i don't really get how ted is short for ed but maybe someone can explain that to me anyway kimbrose take us out all right let's kick this off number one return to normalcy impossible vice president <laughs> important storage capacity uh topped up Oil versus milk. <laughs> Did you make these up on the fly? Good job. Uh, viscous. Cartel. Broader than you think. Bailout. More coming. Leveraged ETFs. Use with caution. An employment rate. Uh, record. U.S. budget deficit. Record. <laughs> Kim Jong-un. Get well? All right. Negative oil price options. Coming. S&P forward P-E ratio. <laughs> oh, if the E is zero, does that mean your P-E ratio goes to infinity? <laughs> I does. mean, yes. Mathematically, yes. What about negative earnings? <laughs> there you go. Then you, then you have to start using um, the inverse functions and everything, right? So I can't think of what it's called when you do that off the top of my head. But anyway. Was that your answer? That's my answer, yes. <laughs> I'm, All right. I mean, who knows where it's going to go? <laughs> Long squeeze. I, I missed that. Say it again. Long squeeze. I'm missing the phrase. You said what long, long, long squeeze. squeeze. Opposite of the short squeeze. Okay. Oh. Uh, CLK0. <laughs> that is the ticker for the May 2000 crude oil contract for those listening. Netflix. Uh, my sanity. <laughs> Personal savings rate. I think it's going to go higher. People are. are uh want to want to save they've been through this you know this pandemic and they they're going to say i need to have more savings i hope so uh strategic petroleum reserve worthless <laughs> i mean if we're not buying if we're not putting it in a negative it's not really very right. strategic, I, I'm, is it yeah i'm gonna take i'm gonna give a different answer kimber <laughs> i'm gonna come back and say Worst market timers ever. <laughs> I think we bought some at like 130 once. I mean, it's just like, it, it, that's why I say it's quintessential. Or the analog is stock buybacks. You know? That's uh, WMTE for the alphabet soup, for those who are tracking it. <laughs> All right. Convenience yield. Crushed. 
ALK zero. <laughs> Herd immunity. I hopeful NFL draft. Hopeful <laughs> coming up on Thursday. How many do you have here, Kimbrel? Uh, we got two more. One for uh, you and one for Mayberry. We got home field with no fans. We're staying on a football theme here. Mm. Perfect. <laughs> and the last is... I was going to say Chargers. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I think of. Rob Gronkowski. I hope they get to play a, a season this year because uh, you know Brady to Gronk could be it's, fun. It's back. That's all I got, guys. Yeah. Well, we'll see how that works. So, all right. Well, thanks everyone. Thanks, Kimbro, for coming in and uh, and giving us some uh, some levity here after all those deep topics on oil. Um, to our listeners out there, you can always catch these uh, where you get your uh, podcast. You can get them on our website. Remember to follow us on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Sherman Show Pod. All one word at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, we'll try to post some good graphics along with uh, this conversation today. I think there's a lot to talk about in the oil market, so our uh, our graph analysts will have a good time with that. And uh, again, uh, keep keep listening in. Thanks for the feedback. We've got a lot of good feedback recently about these weekly updates. And as long as we're safety at home, we're going to keep trying to crank them out uh, until people get tired of hearing from Mr. Mayberry. So again, thanks Jeff for joining us today. Lau, as always, uh, thanks for the hey hey. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.